Good morning. It is great to see everyone here this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. We're really glad to, to have you here. Uh, let me uh, be one of the first to welcome you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you after church. Um, James and Becca, I realized I don't have a slide clicker. Um, I might be calling on you every once in a while to change the slide. Appreciate you. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 7, we're not going to jump around a whole lot today. Um, we'll get to Acts chapter 7 eventually. Uh, Morgan did a great job reading, uh, reading verses 54 through 60 for us, but we'll take another look at it a little bit later, uh, Acts chapter 7. <clears throat> now, according to a morning consult survey last December, uh, so this is post-corona, uh, for whatever that's worth, uh, about 58% of American adults have it. It is contagious. Uh, several countries have ministers that um, are, that have ministries over it to prevent it. It's linked to heart disease and stroke, uh, which makes it worse for your health than smoking or obesity. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we are going to talk about loneliness. Loneliness. Uh, loneliness is uh, pretty common, and uh, even before corona, an alarming amount of people would say that they regularly or all the time wrestle with feelings of being alone or feeling lonely. Um, it can be prevalent uh, over the course of your life. It can be frequent, or it can come periodically or in small bouts. But more and more, we have people in our country and across the world who are wrestling with serious feelings of being lonely. Um, if you can go to my next slide, or the one after that, I suppose. So what exactly is loneliness? I would, if we took a look at this woman, for example, would we say that she is lonely? I don't know if I would say that she's lonely, even though she is alone. She's by herself, but she seems like she's content. Um, side note, I was doing a, a lesson on loneliness before, maybe a little over a year ago, and I was talking to my grandma, and my grandma does not mince her words, and I, my brother and I are her only two grandchildren. And so she has been eagerly and anxiously awaiting the arrival of her great-grandchildren, which are not coming anytime soon. Um, even now, they're not coming anytime soon. But uh, I was talking to my grandma at this time, and I was, uh, she was curious what I was, was teaching on. I said, well, I'm going to talk about loneliness. And she said, oh, loneliness, that's something you're definitely qualified to speak on. <laughs> Thank you, grandma. <laughs> loneliness and singleness are not the same. <laughs> Hear that. <laughs> Yes, I'd been uh, single about six years at that point, so I guess she was curious. But loneliness and singleness or being alone or being in solitude are not the same thing. Uh, on the other hand, if you can go to my next slide, do you think that this person, even though they're surrounded 
by people. There's a bunch of people around them. They're clearly not by themselves. But would we consider them lonely? I think we would. See, loneliness isn't just a state of being alone. I think loneliness is uh, experienced when there's a gap between one's desires or of uh, social connection and their actual experiences of it. So loneliness is the perception of being alone or of feeling isolation. It's not necessarily just being by yourself, but it's feeling by yourself, feeling isolated, feeling misunderstood or unheard or unwanted or unloved. Uh, there's a number of reasons why this can be prevalent in somebody's life. Uh, it could be directly due to um, choices that we make. We can make bad choices and people will want to distance, them, distance themselves from us. Or we might want to distance ourselves from other people um, and self-isolate. So there are, it can happen both good and bad, but sometimes it's just due to the choices that we make. Sometimes it's other circumstances, like when we have a change in environment, like we are feeling some changes at work, or uh, some things are different at home, or when we're experiencing loss of a family member, we would be more likely to experience loneliness. Uh, mental illness absolutely plays a part um, in some people and how they feel lonely regularly. Uh, it's more of a physiological issue there. Um, can be wrestling a lot with depression and anxiety as well. Sometimes loneliness just happens when uh, you are who you are in the environment that you're in. See, I'm not a big Oklahoma football fan because I grew up in Washington. And if I looked, <laughs> if I looked over to see uh, how many of us are uh, University of Washington Husky fans, I'm not going to see a lot of that. Right. It's not because anything's wrong with it. <laughs> I won't say anything about OU lately. Um, <laughs> it's not necessarily because anything's wrong with me or anything's wrong with you. It's just the way I am in the environment I'm in. That would give me room to feel lonely. So loneliness is a big deal, and it's uh, pretty common, and it even affects Christians today. And just because you go to church doesn't mean that you're feeling connected or that you're feeling like you're part of the group or the community. Um, and I think this mindset is improving, but previously there really used to be this really poor belief, and it's linked to the prosperity gospel, that if you really had a good relationship with God, if you really had a strong faith, then you wouldn't feel lonely. You wouldn't feel depressed that just faith alone would automatically heal you from ever feeling lonely or anxious. And so if you feel lonely, it's just because you don't trust God enough and just wait and trust God more. And that kind of belief is kind of similar to um, in John chapter 9 when the blind man is sitting on the side of the road and the disciples are asking Jesus, hey, whose fault is it? Is it his parents' fault? Is it his fault? Whose fault is it? Why is he isolated? Why is he by himself? Because it's got to be somebody's fault. And so that, that, that mindset's improving today, but it's, it's still around. But the church is slowly starting to realize that loving Jesus 
and being depressed are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And someone can say, just because I love Jesus doesn't mean that I don't want to die. Vincent van Gogh was born in 1853, and he started drawing at an early age. And he worked as an art dealer for a while, and uh, later became a missionary to the coal miners in Belgium. And uh, selflessly, he sold a lot of his possessions to support them in his ministry. He made beautiful artwork, uh, including this uh, most famous work, the Starry Night, right here. Uh, and it's estimated, uh, it's not going to be sold, but if it were to be sold, it's estimated that it would be worth well over $100 million. But Vincent van Gogh was born in 1853. Uh, he pursued ministry uh, and being a pastor in the Dutch Reformed Church like his father was doing, but he failed the seminary entrance exam. Shortly after beginning his missionary work in Belgium, he was rejected by the church hierarchy for being what they called overzealous. Nobody at that time appreciated his work. He was considered a massive failure to his upper middle class family. He was believed to often be the victim of unrequited love. He struggled constantly with addiction and mental illness and depression and he was in and out of mental hospitals uh, until ultimately he took his own life in 1890. It was only then, only after his death, when his work truly became appreciated. But his entire life, it wasn't. Don McLean wrote a really pretty ballad about him called Vincent. I don't know if you've heard it. Uh, about him and his work, he described the, the passion and intensity with which uh, Van Gogh painted the messages he tried to communicate in his work, how he tried to express himself when he was not feeling accepted by others. And McLean sang about how defeated and isolated Vincent felt. In his last verse, Don McLean sings this. Starry, starry night, portraits hung in empty halls, Frameless heads on nameless walls, with eyes that watch the world and can't forget, like the strangers that you've met, the ragged men in ragged clothes, the silver thorn of bloody rose, lie crushed and broken on the virgin snow. And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel that loneliness and that emptiness, like you can't do anything right, like you're a loser. Maybe you feel like you're a burden and you're not worth the time or the energy. You feel like maybe you've mustered up the strength to tell somebody how you feel. And you pour out your heart and you share and nothing changes. Situation doesn't change. They tell you to get over it or it'll get better eventually. And you've been waiting so long for things to get better. But maybe they just couldn't understand. Maybe they couldn't relate. You couldn't reach them. And you tried in vain. You were mistaken, misunderstood. You were not heard. They were not listening. They're not listening still.
Perhaps they never will. For as highly revered as um, he is as a New Testament hero, Stephen really only has two chapters dedicated to him in the Bible. Uh, what we do know about Stephen, other than his sermon, which we're, um, we're going to come after in a little bit, um, is that he's a man full of faith and grace and power in the Holy Spirit. Um, he was one of the seven who was called upon to wait tables and uh, serve the elderly. Um, and at this point in the story, he's doing great signs and wonders among the people, and he got into disputes with some men who belonged to the synagogue who instigated other men to spread rumors and lies about him that he was basically blaspheming Moses and God, and, and they brought him before the council. Um, and here we come to Acts chapter 7. We've got a, a really lovely sermon. We're not going to get uh, into that really. Um, he gives the story of of Israel. He gives the story of Jesus, and he talks about um, how God works through Abraham, how he works through Joseph and through Jacob and through the patriarchs. Um, and then Stephen does his little turn. He makes the sharp shift over in verse 51 in his sermon. And he says in uh, chapter 7, verse 51 of Acts, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart, in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have betrayed and murdered. You who have received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. And you know the people loved that. You know the people really enjoyed hearing that. You can actually see, as we look in verse 54 and, and, and 57 and 58, these people are mad. You can just imagine their eyes turning yellow and their ears getting pointy. Uh, in verse 54, when they heard these things, they're enraged and they ground their teeth or they gnashed their teeth at them. That's got to hurt. Uh, verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. They are not happy. And Stephen is all by himself. This might be a natural time for Stephen to feel lonely. What about you? If you were in this situation, if you, were, you had preached a sermon, okay, maybe you got a little pointed at the end, but everyone's rushing at you. Everybody, all in one accord is what the text said. They're all rushing at you, ready to kill you. Would you feel lonely? I probably would. I would grant Stephen permission to feel lonely in this moment. But I'm convinced that he doesn't. And uh, the two points that I want to make regarding loneliness this morning that apply to Stephen also apply to us. The first one is that God knows. If we can get the next slide. God knows. God has empathy for you. When you hear the phrase, when you're talking to someone and you're sharing how you feel, you're sharing your problems, you're sharing what's going on in your life, when you hear the phrase, oh, 
I know exactly how you're feeling. How does that make you feel? Some of us might not care, but when I hear that, I think, no, no, you don't. Now, they might be trying to um, make us feel a little lighter about the situation. They might not know uh, what else to say. But when those people tell us that they know what we're going through, they know exactly how we're feeling, it's hard for me to, to think, oh, yes, you do. It's hard for me to agree with them because they weren't there. They might not have been there with you on those sleepless nights when you were crying out to God for hours, when they didn't wander with you in the desert. They didn't seem, they don't actually know. But God does. God can say he knows, and he means it. He knows from a divine perspective, he knows the amount of hairs even that are on our head, as he would say in Luke chapter 12, verse 7. He knows even the number of our days in Job chapter 14, verse 5. We know all sorts of psalms that illustrate and, and, and tell us exactly how much God cares about us and how much God is with us through anything that we go through. But God also knows experientially. God also, he, he doesn't just sit up on high and know, uh, know in the terms of knowledge. He also knows in terms of experience. Hebrews 4.15 would go on and tell us that we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but he, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a God who's experienced all the things that we have. Jesus knew what it was like to be alone and to be tempted. He knew what it was like to feel misunderstood regularly by his closest friends. He felt that desire for companionship when he prayed in the garden and he was begging his disciples not to fall asleep. He knew the loneliness and death as the ones that he came to save scorned him and his friends left him. And his father turned the face away. And he did these things not just to save us from our sins, which is a very big deal and it's very important. And that's the big reason why we're here today, that Jesus came down to rescue us and save us from our sins. But he also came down to be an advocate, to be a friend, to be someone who can say, I've been there. I know. Not just a, oh, I know what you're going through type of way, but to know exactly all the things that you have dealt with and to still know you experientially. And in a very real way, Jesus knew exactly what Stephen was experiencing. And God knows whatever you're going through as well. The other thing for us to think about when we are feeling lonely on our next slide is that God is with us now. God is with us now. Not later. Now. And I, I make that distinction because it's kind of rough. We serve a God who is a God of rescue. And I believe that. I believe that God is willing and able to rescue us from anything that we might ask. 
And we can think about those times in the Bible when God has proven himself to be a God of rescue. When God took his people Israel out of Egypt and led them through the Red Sea, he, he was with them and he rescued them time and time again, even when they would get themselves in trouble. When they're in the wilderness getting themselves in trouble, God will continue to deliver them. When they're walking through Jericho and even when they're in captivity, God continues to show up. God delivers them. He rescues them. We have all sorts of psalms that are littered with this theme of deliverance. We've got, I've sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me from every fear. We have another one that we sing, had it not been the Lord who was on our side. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, the waters would have engulfed us. The anger of the enemy would have swallowed us alive. Had it not been the Lord who was on our side, but blessed be the Lord. He wouldn't give us up. His unfailing love has allowed us to escape. Blessed be the Lord. We sing other songs like I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. But somehow the master of the sea, he heard my cry and from the waters lifted me. We know that God rescues. We know God delivers. He's fully capable. He has it in him to deliver. We know those stories of Job and of Elijah and of David. They had their periods of being down and God brought them up. And there's Stephen. God does not rescue him. If you take a look at verse 55 of Acts chapter 7, it says that Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed in heaven, he saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is in the worst moment of his life, and that's not up for debate. And he sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There's a lot of imagery that we could look into if we wanted to explore the, the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 or in Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, those visions that Daniel and John had. We won't get into that today. But this image of the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God is peculiar. Because nowhere else in Scripture do we see Jesus standing when he's at the right of God. Usually it will say that he is sitting, but it doesn't say anywhere else that he is standing. We don't know exactly what this means, but what many scholars might believe is that this image of the Son of Man standing indicates the king's acknowledgement of his servant Stephen and the readiness to assist him, to be there with him, maybe even to welcome him. And that's why I think that Stephen could take comfort in the end, because he knew this. He knew that. And before Hagar became the mother of a great nation, she was sent out in the wilderness by her mistress, Sarah. And there, there before she became that great nation, while she was in that wilderness, there is where she gives God the name, you are the God who sees me. Before then, 
Before Joseph became the second in command of Egypt, he was thrown in a pit by his brothers. He was sold into slavery. He was falsely accused of assault. He was thrown in jail, and he was royally forgotten. Before, all of, uh, before he became second in command, he went through all of that. And it was in these times that the Bible says that the Lord was with Joseph. That before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were rescued and taken out of that fiery furnace, that they were thrown in the furnace. And the furnace was so hot that the people who threw them in died from the heat. And that there was a fourth man in the fire with them, God's presence with them, that before Lazarus was even raised from the dead, there were loved ones mourning because Lazarus had indeed died. And Jesus knew he was going to raise up Lazarus from the dead, but Jesus still sees the pain and suffering that these people are experiencing, and he weeps with them. Because before the deliverance, even where you are right now, God cares about you. God is with you. And I, I, I really believe and I trust and I have faith that, that anything that we go through in this life, anything that we wrestle with, any of the, the things that are painful to us, God can redeem those. God can take care of that. God can make good happen out of anything. We don't struggle in vain, and ultimately we will be lifted up to be with him. We will get what we are promised. But we don't have to wait to feel God's presence. We don't have to wait for deliverance. He wants us to cast our burdens onto him. He asks for our burdens when we're weary and we're heavy laden. He's close to the brokenhearted. He values the poor and the mourning, the persecuted and the reviled, and he's promised us that he won't leave us, he won't forsake us, that whether we ascend to the heavens or whether we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we, he would be with us. And right there, in his darkest moment, Stephen saw Jesus standing in the place of judgment, standing in the place of support. And Jesus saw him. And Jesus sees you, and that's good news for you. That's good news if you've made some bad choices and you're sleeping under a bridge. That's some good news if you're stuck in the nursing home and you have no one to visit you. That's good news if you're a stay-at-home parent and your four kids are your only social life. That's good news if you're a middle school kid and you don't have anyone to sit with at lunch. That's good news if you are single or divorced or widowed and you're feeling that natural longing for a partner. That's good news if, if something's going on wrong at work or at home and you feel like you're the only one who really wants to help. That's good news if you hate your parents and you just feel like you always want to run away from home. That's good news if you are sick and you're afraid and you struggle with anxiety and depression and mental illness and abuse that you can't share with anybody, or painful mistakes or loss or, or drugs or cancer or miscarriages or infertility. God is with you. God is with you right now. You don't have to wait for the rescue to feel his presence. That we may feel lonely, 
But we are never alone. And that's why Stephen feels so much peace. He feels so much peace. The Bible doesn't say that he was killed. Or even that he died. It says he fell asleep. And he even feels so much peace. And even as he's being stoned by these people, he asks for his father to forgive them for his very own murder. Because he knew that God knew what he was going through. And he was with him through it. Elizabeth Clefane, um, she wrote the 90 and 9, which is in our songbooks. She was born in 1830. She was an excellent writer, and she was an avid reader, and she was very skilled in literature. She was known around the town for her charity, for giving food and clothing to the poor, taking care of the sick and the elderly. And she even sold her own horses to give to others. She was given the name Sunbeam for her quick smile and her caring demeanor. But Elizabeth Clefane was born in 1830, and she was constantly frail and chronically ill. Her dad died when she was eight, which made keeping food in the house pretty difficult and keeping up with her medical needs basically impossible. Her mom died when she was 13, and the aunt who supposedly finished raising her after her parents had died uh, passed away when Elizabeth was 19. When she was 20, she lost her brother, who drunkenly fell off of a horse and dashed his head. She never married, and at the age of 38, in 1869, she did pass away. Now, eight of her poems were published, but not before her death, and they were published without any credit to her, anonymously. So the year before her death, in 1868, she had a particularly rough um, year of sickness. She spent a lot of it inside, and she thought. She looked back at all the sick and the old that she had helped who had passed. And she looked ahead, and she knew her frailty. And she looked around her. And her vision weakening and her body thinning and weary, she picked up her pencil and her notebook, and she wrote to Jesus. She wrote about what his cross meant to her. She wrote about how the cross of Christ was her rock, her refuge, her rest, her relief, a source of joy and gladness. She wrote about the reality of death, but the greater reality and the power of the cross of her Savior. She wrote about his wonderful sacrifice on the cross, how he suffered and died for her, how much she didn't deserve his love. If you can go to the next slide, Finally, in the last verse of her poem, Beneath the Cross of Jesus, she writes this. 
I take across thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. Content to let the world go by, to know no gain nor loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory all the And she closed her notebook. Elizabeth Cleefan had been dealt a rough hand. At this point, she was constantly sick. She was weak. She was alone. Things didn't look to be getting any better. And they weren't going to be. And she thought about what lay before her. And yet when she felt the pain of being alone, and the anxiety of the future, she saw the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. And right there, in that moment, that's where she found her rest. I want to wrap up uh, this morning. I want to talk to, um, first I want to talk to the people who might be wrestling with loneliness. I know that some of you in here are constantly, regularly feeling like you are not heard, you are not understood, and you're feeling isolated and ignored and abandoned. And I just want you to know that your God loves you. He loves you right where you are. I hope that God delivers you from what you are wrestling with. I hope he does. But even now, Right now, you can know that God knows what you're going through. He's with you. He loves you, and his cross is proof of that, that he accepts you. He stands in care for you. He knows what you are going through. He is with you right now. He's listening to you. Now, if you are one of the lucky ones who is not wrestling with loneliness, has not wrestled with loneliness in a long time, and, and you can't think of the people in your life who might be wrestling with it, I will tell you, you are incorrect. There are certainly people around you, whether it's in your family and your friends or at your workplace, who are lonely, and they're looking for people or things or distractions to fill that hole. They look for things like drugs or sex or, or they focus themselves on work or relationships or their sports or friends or community. And some of these things are good things to focus on and to look at, and some of them are not good. But no matter what they are, they're not sufficient. And it breaks the heart of God that there are people who are not being filled by him. And so I want to give you this encouragement to take the opportunity to see them 
and to love them right now, not later. We can say, I'll be praying for you, but, but maybe, and that's good, maybe in that moment, pray with them. Yeah. Right then. With them. Right now. You can say, let me know if you need anything, but you know that they need something. Help them. I, I, and honestly, I hate bothering people. This is, this is just who I am. I hate bothering people when I need help. I know a lot of you are like this too. I hate asking for help. I hate it. And even more so for those people in your life who may have reached out time and time again and not gotten the help that they've needed or the people who feel hopeless. Find ways to help them now. Take that initiative. Visit them. Take them out to lunch. When you see someone that's sitting by themselves, go sit with them. Take that opportunity to be with them and share the love of Jesus with them. Share it with them today. Because knowing that God knows you and sees you, it makes all the difference. But knowing that you have a friend who cares about you, it's not too bad either. This morning, if you need to respond to the invitation of Jesus, whether that be the, the call to repent and be washed of your sins and be baptized, whether you're wrestling with something else, if you need the prayers of the congregation, if you need to respond for whatever reason, I'd invite you to do that and come forward now as we stand and sing.